Welcome to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, Feminist Coffee Hour on iTunes, at femcoffeepod on Twitter, AskFM, Feminist Coffee Hour, and you can send us an email at feministcoffeehour.com. I'm Karen. And I'm Elizabeth. And today we're going to talk a little bit about women in politics. We'll have a discussion of the benefits and reasons for women in politics. And then we'll be interviewing Rebecca Lynch, who ran for city council in New York City in 2015. So, Elizabeth, why should we elect women? I think that's a great question, and I think we have several reasons why. I mean, first, just a philosophical reason, which is that a government should be representative of the people that live in that place. And so because of that, if there's men and women living in a place, there should be men and women in the government making the decisions. And... One of all 21st century feminists' favorite people, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, has talked about this at length, and it's interesting to see how her opinion kind of changed over time. In 2009, she gave an interview to USA Today, and she said that the Supreme Court needed another woman, because at the time, she was the only woman on the Supreme Court. And something happened to her that was very upsetting. There was a court case about a 13-year-old girl who had been forced to undergo a strip search in her school. And after the case, she had been discussing it with the all men at the time on the court, and they didn't see why it was a big deal. And she told USA Today, they have never been a 13-year-old girl. And I didn't think that my colleagues quite understood why this would be very upsetting and possibly traumatizing for a young girl. And, you know, they, they pressed her on it a little bit more, and she said, women belong in all places where decisions are being made. It doesn't have to be 50-50, it could be 60-40 one way or another, but it shouldn't be that women are the exception, that, you know, you just have that one woman on the court, the token woman. Mm-hmm. And what I think is interesting is that she said this in 2009, and then a few years later, in 2015, She said that people had kept asking her how many women on the Supreme Court is enough. And in 2015, she said, and my answer is, when there are nine. And I think that's really great that, you know, she's she's thought about it more. And she said that, you know, no one had any questions when there were nine men on the court. So no one should have any questions if there were nine women on the court. And it's it's kind of wonderful to see her opinion change in that way. Yeah, she's really progressed. I wonder what that's about. Yeah, I wonder what more experiences that she had. Even in that time, two more women joined the court, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. And Mm -hmm. she's still saying, you know what, we still need more women on the court. So I think that's very interesting to talk about from the Ruth Bader Ginsburg perspective. And then just from social science perspective, this was also from 2009, There was a study conducted by researchers at Stanford University and the University of Chicago, and they studied women in the legislatures in the United States, and they found Mm -hmm. out that women in Congress introduce more bills, attract Mm -hmm. more co-sponsors, and bring home 9% more money for their districts than their male counterparts do. So if you want that, you know, new road, school, or hospital built in your district, vote for a woman. Oh, yeah. Women get stuff done. Mm-hmm. So, a 2008 study of UK politics had confirmed that uh, the number of women has increased and that women in public office have an important fe- effect in building accountability to other women. 
They encourage greater political engagement by women. So when women run for office, more women vote. Hmm. And then the uh, impact of women's caucuses within parliamentary systems uh, has been shown to be effective in enacting policies for women. For example, Brazil's Women's Caucus is known as Bancanda Feminina, and they have secured the approval of laws against domestic violence and sexual harassment and laws concerning women's health and maternity benefits. And then um, women's machineries in other governments have secured other rights for women. There's the... uh, So a a women's machinery in office, uh, such as Chile's National Office for Women's Affairs, used its status to go beyond raising awareness and made policies advocating for legislation again on domestic violence and gender discrimination, including childcare for seasonal day workers and maternity leave for domestic employees. And so women's machineries and caucuses certainly do seem to be effective in enacting policies that benefit women. And that seems really impactful on, on multiple levels. If you're talking about, did you say day laborers and mm-hmm. domestic laborers? Yes. Those are classes of women that we don't talk about that much. Certainly not. And so one thing that I think is also worth noting is electing women does not do some of the things that we kind of project onto femininity as a uh, kind of protector role. Mm-hmm. So while there are correlations between women in government and lack of government corruption, the directionality of this is not uh, shown. So as a researcher, this is kind of one of my favorite canards, which is correlation is not causation. And so what that means is it's not clear whether a less corrupt government is more likely to have a democratic process that allows for women to make their ways into the ranks, or if having women leaders leads to a less corrupt government because of something inherent to women. Another thing worth noting is electing women will not solve problems of class or race. Women, while women in the U.S. tend to be left-leaning, Women in Australia tend to be more conservative than male voters, and generally women who are wealthy and educated tend to focus on the concerns of other wealthy, educated women in office and in their campaigning. So I think it's good to be mindful of what, what benefits there are to women leaders and kind of what women are not as leaders, which is a magic bullet for society's ills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that um, something that we talk about with Rebecca later are the obstacles to running for office. And there's a reason why wealthy white women are more likely to run for office, which is that it's expensive and it requires a lot of free time. Mm-hmm. That was a very striking aspect of running that Rebecca had brought up during our interview. As someone who's frequently um, grabbing at my own hair and tearing it out because of my New York State Senate and legislature being incredibly corrupt, I'm just looking at a list of 
New York State legislators that have been arrested in the past few years, and there's quite a few of them. Uh, two of them are women, but the overwhelming majority are men, but they're not exempt from mail fraud or anything like that, unfortunately. And I think that's something that um, some people might say when they look at these the study that says that, you know, uh, women in Congress work harder. Some people say, well, isn't that just because of sexism? They're trying to work twice as hard to be considered half as good. And that may be the case, but I don't think we're anywhere near eliminating sexism. So that effect, you know, will stay until we do. Mm -hmm. um, and something else about a the uh, the UN did a study on the status of women in the United States that came out last year. Yeah. And they said that we place only 72nd in the world at number of women in government. So we have a ways to go. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have a number of countries ahead of us. Yeah. 72. Well, 71. All right. Yeah. But um, I do think also it's worth noting that when we look at, especially because we're in New York State here as we record, that many of the scandals in Albany uh, that have involved male machine leaders have also involved a significant amount of sexual harassment of uh, women who work in the halls of justice. And so cleaning up corruption, electing female politicians in New York State might potentially result in a safe work environment. Or a safer working environment, hopefully. <laughs> One would hope. So welcome to the first episode of Feminist Coffee Hour, where we're actually drinking coffee while we're recording. Go us. Yay. And since we wanted to talk about millennial women in politics, I thought who better to talk to than Rebecca Lynch. Rebecca recently ran for New York City Council in the 23rd District of New York City, which is in Queens. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Oh, uh, thanks for welcome. having me. We're so glad that you could be here. And one of the things that jumped out at us was an editorial that you had in City and State called Women Candidates Need to Step Up to the Plate. And we're going to link to that in the show notes. But if people haven't read it, can you just tell us kind of the gist of, of why you wrote that editorial, what it's about? Sure. Thanks. It was a really important editorial to me. So thank you so much for mentioning it. The title was not one that I had chosen. So I think it doesn't accurately summarize the entire piece. I mean, I do think that we need women to run. Uh, but the real gist of my op-ed was that I, I truly believe that if we're going to ask women to run, and, you know, create a, a narrative about how we need more women to be involved in politics that we have to really support them. Uh, and what I found in my particular experience is that in the course of my campaign, there were a number of organizations and women elected officials who had built uh, up their own brands and fundraised for themselves based on this narrative that they're going to support women who run and we need more women in politics. And what I found is that almost none of those groups or women ended up supporting me. Uh, oh my goodness. Really, it was really eye-opening. Uh, but for me, you know, this is really important, not for my race, right? My race is over, but for the women who are running and, you know, by the time I think this podcast airs, we'll know the results of a special election happening in the Bronx where in Council District 17, uh, there are a number of people running in a nonpartisan election for city council. And one of them is a 25-year-old woman who's run the local congressional office there, who's brilliant, who's raised a lot of money compared to her male opponents. And, you know, we'll see how well she does. But I think uh, it's really important that for women like candidate Amanda Septimo, who's brilliant, and the women to come after her, that we really hold folks as particularly leadership accountable to what they say in terms of supporting women candidates, you know, and, and to be clear, I think that 
just because someone is not part of the power structure of the society, if you're a person of color, if you're a woman, doesn't mean that you have to bear the burden of waving that identity flag. You know, if you're a black elected official, you can be an elected official who happens to be black. It's your choice whether or not you want to own a certain identity. I think the same is true for women. But for those women who are in power, who talk about supporting women candidates and getting more women elected, they have to actually support them. And I think part of that is, of course, fundraising for them, you know, going out, hitting the streets for them, supporting them emotionally during really stressful campaigns. But another part is that you are in a position of power. You're not just someone with a bully pulpit. You're not an activist. You are a legislator. And in your role as a legislator, there's quite a bit that you can do to empower people who are not part of the political establishment. And since the political establishment is all men, the incumbents are mostly men, you know, the city council, we've got 51 council members, 14 are women, right? So the majority of incumbents in the council are men. To empower those who are it, we need to empower people who are incumbents, right? To empower women, we've got to open up the petitioning process, we've got to open up the fundraising process. And that's not something, as a woman in leadership, you should just throw your hands up about. You should introduce bills, you should introduce legislation, you should use your power to change the system to empower challengers. And so that's my, my hope with the piece, and, and hopefully, you know, that's something that we'll see moving forward. Wow. I think that was really interesting. Um, full disclosure, I was both a donor to and a volunteer for uh, Rebecca's campaign over the summer, summer of 2015. And I, I did notice that you did have a lot of young people and a lot of young women involved, you know, running your office. And I was just thinking, like, you have all of these, you know, feminist alpha girls, like, running the world. <laughs> and it was it was really great and it felt really empowering. But I never stopped to think you know, what you point in your, out in your article was that a lot of older women who are in power, you know, did say, hey, you should do this. And then you turn around and, and they're not there. And I was I was really shocked by that. And I think it's it's really important to talk about that, because when we encourage uh, a women to take action, um, it can't just be lip service. And, and I think it was really good that you pointed that out, that you have to back it up. Why do you think, you know, you were talking about how there's more men than women in the city council and, you know, that that's duplicated in cities across the country and, and nationally. Um, why do you think it is that women are less likely to run for office than men? You know, I think there are a lot of reasons and people way smarter than myself have looked into this and there have been studies, but in my view of the world, you know, I think there's there's a few different places we should focus on. You know, I think one is just how challenging it is personally to run for office. In my article, I mentioned that New York City has this really incredible campaign finance program that helps candidates that don't necessarily have wealthy donor bases to fundraise, um, empowering small donors so that people like Elizabeth, who donated to me, their uh, donations are multiplied. It really uh, encourages grassroots fundraising campaigns. But what it doesn't do is fund the candidate themselves. Uh, I know that sounds like a strange thing, but the truth is, you know, on campaigns, the only person who doesn't get paid is the candidate. It's a huge financial blow. Uh, And for women, whether they're supporting a household or not, I mean, that's a real consideration, particularly when we don't have equal pay. And so for me, I was very fortunate, you know, I was living in my family home and was running with a lot of love and support from my friends who would buy me pizza, whatever I needed it. But it, it was really hard not to make a paycheck. And I think that's a huge part of it. I do think uh, beyond the person, I mean, there are other personal issues that we could go into, but I think beyond the personal, in terms of the political, you know, we talked about before, we have in this city, and I think in this country, and, and we can talk about more macro scale later, a deeply entrenched political patriarchy that runs throughout every aspect of how we choose our leaders, whether it's cultural, whether it's the media, but I think it's particularly true in the inner workings of politics, whether it's how establishments choose their candidates, 
you know, how people raise money, how they get endorsements. And I think if you're from without outside of the establishment, it's particularly hard. And it sounds cliche to talk about a boys club, but it exists. It, it really does exist. And that doesn't mean that the boys in the boys club are bad guys. They're, they're fine, you know, but it means that there are people who are not included in that. And so if you're going to run, it's even more of an uphill battle if you're a young woman from outside of that network. And that's a real consideration that you have to think about. And do I want to put myself through this, my family through this, my career through this? Um, so I think that that's also a real consideration. Um, but the last thing I think is that, you know, it is such a, to some people, I think politics is so mystifying. You know, they don't know what it takes to run. They don't know how to get involved. And I think, you know, what we have now is a political class in New York City of people who understand politics and campaigns who decide to get involved, but we haven't broadened the franchise or brought in the ability to run to the rest of the city. And I think there are a lot of women, you know, we see them in our, our area in Eastern Queens. I know they exist in the Bronx where this special election is happening, but throughout the city who are very active, whether it's advocating for, you know, environmental justice for their kids in terms of education on their community boards, outside of their community boards. There are a lot of women who get involved however they can, but aren't part of this political class and don't quite know what the route would be to running. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, maybe on the flip side of that, I know a lot of times it's really easy to find articles on why women don't run. And I actually, while preparing for this, I kind of Googled, like, what makes women run? You know, when do women run? And it all, like, all of the results were why women don't run. So (laughs) I'm really interested in kind of hearing this process of when you decided to run and kind of what climate if you had your kind of utopia thing going on, what kind of things would encourage that in your experience or that you may know about? It's a great question. Um, I don't know how much of my experience can really be expanded to others, but um, for me, I was not sitting around plotting when or if I was going to run for office. You know, I had done a lot of community work, partly uh, because that's how I feel in terms of, I, I feel it's very important to be involved in the community, but really that's how I was raised. My parents were activists. Uh, my mother was a tenant organizer, my father's a union organizer, uh, and I was raised with a strong ethos of being involved in the community. And so when I was an adult, I came back from college, and I was our Democratic district leader, I ran our Democratic club, I was in the board of these community organizations, had done a lot of work in the community that I care about. I think it's a great area, I'd love to tell you why. But I wasn't necessarily planning on running. And then out of nowhere, our council member resigned to take a position with the governor, leaving us without representation for actually quite some time. And there were a number of people who called me, including women, including young women who are elected officials, uh, who aren't, but work in government, and really encouraged me to think about running for the seat. And it had caught me off guard. I didn't expect the seat to open up. I wasn't sure that was necessarily what I wanted to do, but I worked so hard. I care so much about our neighborhood. And I looked at the field and I thought, you know, I have to run if I want to make sure that the issues that I care about are highlighted and eventually worked on. So that I I hope that's helpful. I I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of talking points. There are a lot of talking points out there on how women need to be asked to run several times. I think there's something to that. I don't want to overemphasize the importance of that, but I I do think there's something to that. And, uh, you know, Assemblymember Neely Rosick, who's out here, who's a really strong feminist young woman, ran against the establishment, a hard race, worked her butt off, and ended up surprising the entire political establishment by winning, and now is really advocating for strong feminist legislation, and would love to talk about it. 
you know, she encouraged me to run. Her campaign manager, who became my campaign manager, encouraged me to run. And what was important about that is that they weren't just saying, she should run, you should run, but they were backing it up with support and knowledge and really helped, you know, guide me throughout every step. And I think that's what women need. You know, I think if we want more women to run, it's encouraging them when the seat opens up, you've got to do this. And this is what I'm going to do to help you do this and, and really carry them every step of the way. Because it's not about a candidate is just one small part of a campaign. And to create powerful campaigns where we elect women candidates, it takes a lot of people. And so I think that that would be the, the most helpful thing to get women to run. So you're saying kind of like a, a mentorship and network sharing model. I think, yeah, I think that's right. I think having having a model where people are really pushing you and, and reminding you, no, you are very qualified. No, you know about the community. You've been involved. You care about the issues. You would be a great legislator. And I'm going to keep telling you this every day. And I'm going to do these 10 things, you know, along the way. I think that's really important. I was just so excited when you told me you were running for office. I think, I don't know if you remember what I told you, but I said the same thing to Karen and to Adam and to a few of my other friends, which was when I heard that Weprin was resigning, I have this little daydream, like, yeah, imagine if I did that. And then, you know, Rebecca's like, I'm doing it. And I was so excited. <laughs> and it just takes so much, I think, to put yourself out there. It's so difficult. Like, I'm no stranger to public speaking. You can't keep me away from the microphone. When people tell me that they like my podcast, I'm like, you like hearing me talk. But it's a whole <laughs> other level when you when you run for office. And, and I was thinking about that. And I, I have volunteered for other campaigns of, you know, women who are under 30 who are running for office. And I see the kind of, of sexism that's thrown against them. And it, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's very off-putting even to, you know, someone like me who is a feminist, and I think, well, you know, maybe I'll wait till I have some gray hairs and <laughs> until I'm, you know, grandmotherly age and the things they'll say about me will be much different. Maybe I'll have a, a thicker skin then. But, Rebecca, I wanted to know, if, do you think that there are obstacles that women face and or that younger women face that are, that are unique in, in getting involved in politics? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there are a number of obstacles that are particular to younger women. You know, I started my career working with labor unions, uh, advocating for their members and families in New York City, but also in Albany. And Albany has come a long way since I started as an advocate and lobbyist there, but it, it's still not where it needs to be. I cannot tell you how challenging that was as a young woman. Uh, it is, a, as has been widely publicized, you know, a climate of dysfunction and corruption, but also extreme sexism. And I think there are a lot of people there um, who are entrenched in those structures who turned a blind eye to it and allowed it to go on. People were victimized right in front of me. I felt like I was victimized. It was really an emotionally draining experience. And that's a real challenge. And even, even in places that are less dysfunctional, whether it's city government or, or labor, you know, I do think that, of course, there are you know, unhelpful conversations uh, where people speculate on, you know, someone's sex life. You know, if you're under a certain age and you work in a certain area, you must be sleeping with someone, right? Uh, slut shaving and, and the whole, that definitely mm -hmm. exists. And I, I do think that's really challenging. I think in some ways the challenges aren't very different than the ones that our elders have gone through, but I don't see much of a bridge between, you know, older women, whether they're elected officials or otherwise, really pulling younger women up. It still feels like we're very much on our own trying to navigate this. 
Do you feel like there are things that um, current pol- like female politicians, so you were talking so much about like kind of really needing that support in order to run. Do you feel like in office then, were there female politicians who were not supporting female staff in these situations? Or anything you could speak to about that or male politicians that didn't like it but didn't stand up, you know? Yeah, I think I think there's no doubt that happened. And I don't know that I can point to specific instances and I certainly don't think it's productive at this point to name names, but you know, Assemblymember Vito Lopez, who has since passed and was, you know, run out of office, really, you know, very blatantly victimized staff. He's a very powerful man in Albany. And it was something that not only was tolerated by former Speaker Shelley Silver, but covered up by him, enabled by him. All of his colleagues knew it was happening. I didn't hear the uproar. And in fact, you know, when when a light was first shown on Vito and his his actions, there were other elected officials, including elected officials who represent you and I, Elizabeth, who said, well, I think that none of this is true. Let's wait and see, you know. And then the same with, with Speaker Silver. You know, I think, you know, you really saw the boys kind of rally around them initially until they realized it was a lost cause. And that, to me, is really indicative of how they had just, like, accepted and covered up and gone with the flow um, for the years before. And so I, I don't know what that is. You know, I don't know if it's, you know, particularly among the women, if it's something along the lines of, well, I, I dealt with this. It's, you know, it used to be much worse. It's really not that bad now. And, you know, I've dealt with it and learned how to, to succeed in this way. But I think there's really like a level of unacceptable behavior uh, that exists in politics that would not be allowed to exist in a lot of other settings, you know, whether it's academia or business, not to say that we don't have real issues there. Right. But there don't seem to be enforced HR standards mm-hmm. in politics in the in the way that you see in at least at a minimal level enforced elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And if the voters don't know about it, there's nothing that can be done. I don't know what goes on in anyone's office at all. I mean, I mean, what happens when I call, what they say to me, but I'm not going to ask about that. That's not even something I think about. There are legislators in Albany who aren't, quote unquote, aren't allowed to have female interns. And I don't know the extent to which that's true, like at this very moment, but it's been true throughout the years. Yeah, I've um, heard stories if you've been around more than, I don't know, a year. Yeah. But <laughs> and, oh, no, go ahead. Well, that in particular seems incredibly toxic because if they can't have women working with them, then what is the likelihood that their mentee is going to be female? What's the likelihood that the person who replaces them is not going to come up in the same environment thinking that this is acceptable and is this kind of a system that de facto shuts women out of anyone who comes after this elected official. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's a great point you bring up. And and I want to address that, but just very quickly, you know, there's an assembly member whose name that I will not bother to learn how to pronounce because it's very hard to pronounce and he's, he's done now. There's an assembly member upstate who was shown to really have victimized his staff. He did have staff, not just interns. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, victim, you know, sexually harassed, really nasty stuff. Uh, is no longer in office. I think he resigned. And it's been two years since then, and they just came out, the, the J-Cope, the legislative committee, just came out saying that he did do these things. But still no punishment, right? But finally, two years, like, oh, he did do these things. Um, and I think that there's a really, not only is this happening and there's an acceptance of it, but once it comes to light, there's really not much satisfaction. Uh, but the point you bring up, I think, is key. And, and something that really concerns me is this political pipeline. And I think it is important to have um, female staff that we empower and build up who who learn the ropes and decide whether or not they want to be in politics. I think the pipeline is additionally important uh, among elected officials themselves. 
And I think, for example, what Senator Gillibrand is doing across the country is amazing. You know, she's empowering women. She wants to get more women in Congress. I think that's great. In her own backyard, however, in New York City, 51 council members, only 14 are women. And if we want to have more women in Congress and we want to have powerful pro-choice voices, not just today, but for decades to come, we have to start investing in these young women and getting them to run for local office. You know, I care about having women's health, strong women's health policies and, and strong pro-choice policies in Congress today. And I care about it for next term and I care about it for 10 years from now, but I want it for the course of my life. And right now I look at the field of local elected officials in New York and who could be members of Congress. And there really, are, there's so many men, so many men. And I, I praise feminist men and pro-choice men. I don't know how many of the legislators are feminist men, but you know we really need more women. And even in New York, such a quote unquote progressive state, we have so many members of Congress and really only a handful of women. So I, I think the pipeline is incredibly important. And I think it's something that doesn't get enough attention. So that's actually what my next question is about. And I think I'm going to phrase it a little bit differently. And I guess we've been kind of negative because we've talked about <laughs> reasons why women don't run for office um, for, you know, systemic sexism reasons. They're less likely to think that they're qualified. Um, they need people to ask them several times. And we've talked about, you know, unique obstacles that women face. But say there was a young woman that you knew that was thinking about running for office and you really thought that she should, what would you say to her to convince her? Like, well, how do you encourage someone? And I think you, you got part of it when you said you have to back up your words with actions. Like, how, how can we support these, these women? Just tell them, like, I think you'd be great and write them a check? Like, what else? Or is there anything else? <laughs> I, I've been... I'm, I have a Jewish mother and I'm a Jewish woman, so I'm a little bit pushier than that, which may not be the best, <laughs> the best play. But, you know, I, I have had a lot of people come to me, both men and, and women, mm -hmm. young people, um, since my campaign, who tell me, you know, I really want to run this year, next year, in the future, and, and really ask me for advice. I've had women come to me and say, oh, I don't know, maybe I might run, but probably not. And what I've told them is that they have to, right? I'm like, you have to run. <laughs> I'm like, you don't have a choice. And, and the reason you have a choice is that, you know, there are so many people, like we talked about earlier, who it, they probably have a lot to share, a lot to give, but under the structure that our leaders have uh, put in place, they will never have the option. They cannot afford it. You know, they're feeding themselves, they're feeding their family, their health doesn't allow it. They, whatever the reason may be, they just like cannot run. And if you think you can, then you have to do it. I just think you have to, you know? And of course, it's a lot to ask and, and not everyone can. But if you can, I think you have to. And then I think beyond that, you know, I tell them I'll do anything I can to help them. I give them advice. Obviously, I don't know everything. I ran unsuccessfully, not successfully, so take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> but I think, you know, I give them advice. You know, I'm definitely going to be, you know, donating to uh, some of the young women who are running now. And I think, you know, it's just to be clear on how I feel about supporting women. I think it's okay to support men. Mm -hmm. And I know some... Of course really, it is. <laughs> I think there are some really fantastic men who are running, mm -hmm. and some of these women I'm encouraging are running in the same race as these fantastic men, and I will give them both support. But I think that, you know, if there's a woman who says she's thinking about running, you have to, you have to make sure they know just how important it is that mm -hmm. they run, and then continue to encourage them. And I've told candidates, you can call me anytime. Call me at 11 o'clock at night, 4 in the morning. And one of the things that was so helpful to me was that during my race, I felt really alone. I had this amazing team. I had amazing volunteers. But there was nothing that could have prepared me for the experience of being a candidate. And 
the need to show a certain face to your staff, but you don't, that's not how you're feeling. You never have time to yourself. Like there's, you know, a, a Russian roulette on the doors of what you're going to get, you know, in terms of personalities, it's really challenging. And I was able to talk to a woman who's on the board of Eleanor's Legacy, who's an elected official in Long Island, who really gave me encouragement and support. And I was able to be really honest with. And so I'd love to be that resource uh, to other women, which I told them, call me anytime. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that's helpful to them as well. Can you explain what Eleanor's Legacy is for our listeners? Oh, sure. So the Eleanor Roosevelt Legacy Committee, I believe is their proper name, is an organization of women in New York who encourages female candidates to run. And I was very fortunate to have their support. They gave me a donation. Brett McSweeney, who is really brilliant, um, came out and volunteered on my campaign. She's their executive director, I believe. Uh, and they were actually alone among the women's groups in supporting my race. And I think that's a really important point. Now, to be clear, you know, I don't know that if I got the support of every, any, every single women's group that I would have won. I, I don't know. But I think we have these groups in New York, and some of them are, are expressly, you know, women's political organizations. Some of them, you know, maybe are more Planned Parenthood fraction or now NYC, who ended up deciding not to get involved in my race. And I think we need to talk about why it's important that they do in the future and what that what that's about, you know? And Eleanor's, Eleanor's legacy supported me. And I think it was <clears throat> even challenging for them to do that because politically to run against the establishment anywhere means you're running against very powerful people who are exerting influence on the organization, even a women's organization. Yeah, it gets complicated. But I'm, <laughs> so I don't have something nice to say, <laughs> yeah. so maybe I shouldn't say anything. But it's very disheartening. I, I think I think it's important that you're talking about it, and I think it's great that you're talking about it because I think that even among liberal political people in Queens or in New York City, there's certain things that you're not supposed to say. And if someone says, you know, Planned Parenthood should have endorsed in that race, you know, people are going to be like, eh, but you kind of know why they didn't, because whoever won, they wanted to support that person, and they didn't want that person to be mad at them. But I was, to- like, I was told... I feel like... Yeah. Well, what, what were you told? No, I forget which organization told me, um, which is for the best, because I don't want to name names, but one yeah. organization told me, oh, there are multiple pro-choice candidates in the race. Just to be clear, right, like, I am the only person who qualified for campaign finance funds in my race who was a strong candidate who possibly could have or will have an abortion Mm -hmm. in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. The only person that that could be true for. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's important to have, you know, male allies and pro-choice men in office. Mm -hmm. But I think that if we have a pro-choice woman, an aggressively pro-choice woman running for office, that that pro-choice organizations really need to seriously take a look at that. I I agree. And, I mean, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but do you really think, does anybody really think that if Planned Parenthood would have endorsed you, right, and then Barry Grodencheck wins, and then they endorse him in the general election, that he's going to be like, well, I'm pro-life now. No. Like, is, is that really something that good, would or could happen? And if it's not, then, I don't know, maybe we should have someone from Planned Parenthood in here. I know a few people, but they would probably just not want to talk about that. They probably aren't allowed to talk about Yeah, that. they'd probably be but, like, yeah. we do great work in public schools, which they do. Yeah. Good job, sex ed in public schools, but, like, politically, I'm mad at you. Sorry. Say someone listening is a woman who wants to run for office, maybe not right now, maybe in the future. What should she do now to prepare to run later? It's a great question. I think that any young woman who's considering running for office should start to get involved in their community if they're not already. It doesn't mean that you have to do it in any particular way. You don't have to join the community board. You don't have to be involved in the Democratic Club. You choose whatever is the best fit for you and your politics and your conscience. Uh, but certainly start to get involved, get to know people. 
there are plenty of opportunities to practice uh, going door to door, as you know, Elizabeth, and we've done together. Petitioning for candidates or petitioning for causes and going door to door and talking to people is a great way to get over the fear of talking to strangers and, and get to know people, you know, particularly people who care about politics in your community. So I think those are two really important things. A third thing that is really helpful is starting to think about where you would get your money from. And that's not something I did because I running kind of plopped on my lap. But it's something that groups like Emily's List really encourage people to do, and I think it's well-founded advice. You, whether it's creating a spreadsheet, which I think is the best thing to do, but even something more simpler, just starting to think about it, you have no idea how many people you know. And we as young people are at a real advantage because we have Facebook and things that you know other candidates didn't have. You can download that whole list, but start thinking about everyone you know, making sure you have their contact information, keeping in touch with people that you think would want to be helpful to you. But growing your network and like knowing what your network is is so key. So key. And then, yeah, I would say, you know, of course, stay on top of the news and current events and learn about issues. But if you're thinking about running, you're already doing that. So you're you're 10 steps ahead. That's great. And I guess one way that benevolent sexism might work in women's favor is that in my experience knocking on doors, oh, my God, I've been doing this for like 10 years now, uh, people are more likely to open the door for a woman than a man. So uh, <laughs> race does play into that also, but in general, I think that that's true. So you got, you got one point in your, in your favor there. <laughs> so just like to go to the national stage a little bit. So we're in the time machine a little bit, as they say on the Ron and Beverly show. So, you listen to that one? It's a comedy show. Um, this will be airing probably in March, probably a little bit after Super Tuesday. But this week, this past week, in the Republican primary debate, Ted Cruz attacked Donald Trump for having New York values. Rebecca, what are New York values? <laughs> what are your New York values? It's so funny, we were talking about this before the podcast, you know, Donald Trump is actually from our council district. Oh my god, yeah, I knew he was from state. Queens, I yeah. did not know that. So uh, I'm all just, creeped out just now. Just so you know. Touch um, the rails of the train station. I'm clean. I know. Karen's from Brooklyn. <laughs> um, but I am from, like, the only red district in Brooklyn, so. Oh, that's not good. It is. That's interesting. I didn't or, know that. Originally from. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. It's gerrymandered into Staten Island. That's why. Gotcha. Yeah, I think... <laughs> Ted Cruz's attack on Trump was appalling, uh, and it was just the latest thing, uh, since we're in the time machine, I'm sure there'll be more after this, but yeah. just the latest uh, really appalling offensive, the offensive thing in the entire line uh, of offensive things in the course of this presidential primary. I mean, it's really outrageous, and I've been offended so many times, and you know, I'm no defender of Donald Trump, and quite frankly, as a, as a woman, as a Jewish woman, I'm terrified of the views that he espouses mm -hmm. about Latinos, about refugees. My people were refugees, and I think it really is reminiscent of when we turned away people during Kristallnacht, right? And so how do we make sure that we don't go back to the bad old days uh, is really on the forefront of my mind, particularly when anti-Semitism around the world was really on the rise. So mm -hmm. Donald Trump is no hero here, and he's been really appalling. But I found Ted Cruz's statement equally appalling, and I tweeted the other night, you know, when everyone was tweeting about New York values, a line from The West Wing, where, I don't know if you remember this episode, not to be a stereotype, but I love The West Wing, and there was an episode where um, conservative right-wing Christian character accused Josh and Toby of having New York humor, and... Josh is like, I'm from Connecticut, but I'm from Connecticut. <laughs> and Toby's like, no, she didn't mean New York. She meant Jewish. She's talking about Yeah, that about sounds anti-Semitic. It does sound anti-Semitic. Mm. And of course, you know, Trump is, is not Jewish, but, you know, New York, when I hear New York values, my antenna definitely goes off. And I think 
to be clear, I am completely opposed to anyone politicizing 9-11. You hear it all the time. I think it's outrageous as someone who lived in the city and knew people who went down to the towers and saw the towers on fire for weeks. I mean, it's really outrageous and really gets to me. But, you know, I understand why Trump brought that up because, you know, when you talk about patriotism and then you talk about New York and to not talk about the heroes of 9-11 and the entire city and the country embracing the city and the city embracing each other, uh, you're really missing something. And for me, I was glad that he brought that up because we just came on the heels of the Zadroga fight in D.C. where all of these, you know, American flag lapel wearing Republicans were going to deny mm-hmm. money for health care to 9-11 heroes over their hatred of quote unquote liberals. Uh, is really outrageous. And so I think it's something that to be brought up. But New York values to me, I think, you know, it's diversity, it's kindness. You know, a lot of people on Twitter were saying it's giving up your seat to the elderly on the train, but that's really what it is, you mm-hmm. know? And I see people all the time helping each other out, you know, whether it's donating to a homeless person on the street. We recently had someone literally give their shirt to someone on the subway. To me, th- that is a mm-hmm. New York value. And I think it's really scary and divisive for someone to just discount 20 million people in New York because we happen to have some people here who are Jewish or some people here who are immigrants or some people who are Democrats. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we consider ourselves very much Americans. Yeah, it seemed to me like a dog whistle for kind of racist, anti-Semitic in, like, intonations or implications. But I actually, I, there was this article in The Intercept titled, the Intercept. Yeah, titled Ted Cruz Hates New York Values But Sure Loves New York Money, <laughs> about how uh, his campaign has accepted $11 million from a single person <laughs> who is uh, a hedge fund co-CEO of Renaissance Technologies named Robert Mercer. And that's just one person out of all of the donations that he's getting from New York. Is he $11 uh, million? Dollars? $11 million. But actually, I think it's illegal for a single person to donate that. It was donated through a super PAC with only one. Uh, no, I'm sorry, with only two donors. So the super PAC made the donation. Did any two unions? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. I would not want to slander by saying that he accepted a, a donation from a person. That's he accepted crazy. it That's from really a crazy super PAC. Yeah. Um, you're talking about possibly supporting yeah. senator manager, president. You know, I to me, it is incredibly important that we have a woman president. Mm-hmm. That, that is, I was completely radicalized in 2008 by Hillary's campaign, and I was in tears during her DNC oh. speech, and, and it's really important to me that we have that. Uh, but I, I do want to be clear, um, you know, in communicating my view that I think feminists can be both men and women, and are both men and women. Mm-hmm. I think, for example, in our city right now, we have a mayor who has deep feminist traits, whether it's his, you know, marriage to a strong woman, it's a clear partnership, they both are very much involved in each other's decision making, whether it's, you know, his team, where it's not tokenism, it's not empowering women just to empower women. I mean, his team is really built to some very strong women. Uh, but more more so than all of that, you know, the policies that are put forward by this administration, I think, are, are really feminist policies. And when you look at universal pre-K and you look at paid family leave and you look at paid sick days, these are things that we will fight for $15 for minimum wage. So many people making minimum wage are women. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are incredibly important. And I think... You know, we really need to 
demand that our elected officials and, and candidates for office, both men and women, espouse feminist policies. Now, I think that Secretary Clinton does espouse feminist policies as well mm -hmm. as Senator Sanders. Um, but I, I think that that is really important. I want more women in office, but I want feminists in office, uh, first and foremost. And if there's a woman who's not a feminist, and I think we could think of a few examples. Mm -hmm. For me, Sarah Palin always comes to mind. Mm -hmm. I would never support Sarah Palin. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really important. Yeah, and I feel like uh, Elizabeth and I have talked about this a bit, and I know a lot of people have kind of written about being a feminist and a woman and having to kind of make this choice between Hillary and Sanders, uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. And uh, I feel like for me, one thing that's really struck me is Hillary, even if she has not been asked, brings up reproductive rights in debates in a way that I have not seen a candidate do before. And that is hugely invigorating to me. And I think, you know, I don't know if that's by virtue of her being a female or by virtue of how important this issue is to her as a candidate. But I do think that that's really worth mentioning as a feminist, that reproductive rights, having a female candidate might be part of what contributes to making that on the table as a topic of discussion, even if the moderator is not bringing it up. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, look, I think, you know, even if even if Secretary Clinton does become the next president of the United States, and obviously I hope she does, I, you know, I was raised by activists. I consider myself like a really strong advocate on a whole host of issues. And I think whoever is in the White House is always going to need to be pushed to the left. Always. And I think we saw it with this past president who I think President Obama will go down in history as one of the greatest presidents that we've ever had in this country. I truly believe that. He's done some extraordinary things. But you always need to have people pushing him to the left, whether it's on financial reform, whether it's on Black Lives Matter, whether it's on, you know, not starting another war, which obviously is incredible. Maybe it's not obvious. It's incredibly important to me. I think women are really crucial in the peace movement. Uh, and I am concerned about, you know, whether or not our next commander in chief is going to be a neocon or not. Right. And so I think, you know, we have to keep pushing for the policies that are important to us, whoever is elected. All right. So you're on Twitter at. Oh, Rebecca Lynch, NYC. And I'm on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P I like the number Pi. And I'm on Twitter at uh, Karen, like U H K A R N. And thank you so much, Rebecca, for being on the show. This was amazing. Yeah, thank it was you. So great to have you. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.